Hey, I'm Sarah Castor, and welcome to Clara Talks, a podcast where we seek to articulate the truth of Christ to every person in every study across every campus. Today on the podcast, we'll learn about how depression can challenge our view of what the good life should look like. So last week, Seth, we got talking about what makes life good, and mm-hmm. we were kind of thinking about the moments when we can't seem to see that life is good. Um, and I mentioned that for this episode, I wanted to interview Jen Starkey. Seth, do you know Jen? I do not know Jen, no. Oh, my goodness. Well, you do need to meet her at some point <laughs> <laughs> in your Cornell career. So, I mean, I think that Jen is super popular, at least within crew. She interned for Crew a couple years ago, and now she's studying at the Westminster Theological Seminary for Master's in Biblical Counseling. That's awesome. Yeah. Very, very useful for these times, honestly. So yeah, she's been like, I guess, informally counseling me for the past year now. Actually, like when the pandemic hit, she started. And yeah, she's just been helping a host of other younger Christians, younger women. But Jen didn't always used to be a Christian. Hmm. Yeah, she actually came to Christ her sophomore year at Cornell. Oh, wow. That's pretty recent. Yeah, yeah. It was about four or five years ago, which is about the time where I became a Christian, actually. I'm excited to hear her story. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely definitely a bit rough. Yeah. You know, she's had like a lot of different mental health struggles throughout her life. And so actually in this, in the interview that I have with her, she talks a bit about her experience as an unbeliever and her experience with chronic depression as well. Wow, that's... That's hard stuff. It is. Yeah. Let's take a listen. Jen, we'll talk a little bit about how your experiences with depression changes after you became a Christian. But before you became a Christian, can you please describe a specific moment where you felt like the world being a good place was all up to you? And if you did fail, it felt like game over? That's a good question too, because in a lot of ways, there are so many of them. One scenario that I think we've all experienced, and if I'm speaking to Cornellians, I'd assume that most of you, at least at one point prior to freshman year, fancied yourself an intellectual or at least somewhat intelligent. But I remember sitting in my room in high school having a conversation with a friend of mine actually about just like God and life. And we had watched the Da Vinci Code and I was studying like history at the time. I don't know. I had interesting conversations with people for sure, but I I had just gone on this long rant essentially of my position, which if you know me really well, is not uncommon to my personality when I'm comfortable with you. But my friend responded, that's stupid. And I was like, okay, well, why? And this sounds like such a small thing, which is why I'm also giving this as an example. Well, because of this, he pretty much just gave this one reason that in my mind broke down everything I just said for eight minutes. So not only had I made a fool of myself, I had done it for eight minutes straight with a friend who was close to me at a way that attacked a core character of my identity that was any facet of an identity that I held on to being an AP student doing well in high school, like, you know, doing that whole thing. And again, it sounds like such a small thing because the reality of it, it it is, it is one small thing, but it is one huge thing when your world is entirely yours. And so I tell that story and I picked that one because 
that single moment, two hours later was the first time I ever tried to kill myself. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, not because it was the biggest thing, but because there were already all, all these other things I had failed at, all these other characteristics that I had failed to meet up to, everything that I wasn't that I knew that I either wanted to be or, or should have been. And all it took was one conversation. And that just stuck with me, that, that line of that's absolutely stupid. And I got to a place of, if I can't even have conversations with people, like not only can I not take tests, not only can I not make my parents happy, not only can I not be a, a good, you know, firstborn, not only can I not make myself feel happy, which I think is a, a, a big, difficult thing as a teenager uh, as well. Like, I can't talk. I can't open my mouth. So why the heck am I here? So yeah. And then hours later, it just stuck with me and stuck with me and stuck with me. And I got to the point of, okay, well then if I can't do this, if I can't even talk, if words, if my words can't even be substantial, then what's the point? I ended up in a hospital a couple hours later. So it really shows you the fragility of that mindset. Again, not because that was rational or logical or good or healthy or stable or anything that wasn't even close, but all it took was that feeling that you get when somebody says, well, that's wrong to have someone absolutely crumble. I feel like your story really described what depression is, but could you please more explicitly state what depression is to you? That's an interesting question. Because, you know, I could definitely give a DSM-5 answer, which is the standard definition of it. It's do you meet all these categories and these behaviors and these feelings? But I think that if we're talking about depression in a broader sense, I think we all experience hopelessness. And I think we all experience discouragement. And I think that depression within itself is when that becomes debilitating. It's sort of like when, when your hope is so deeply lost and so deeply clouded by darkness that functioning through life rationally is not even worth living anymore. It's an inability to see goodness or glory or light or anything positive. And it's a sense of just being completely isolated and alone and at the same time having the weight of everything in the world on your shoulders. Wow, that's that's pretty accurate. But just to clarify, when you say the weight of everything, what did you mean there? The weight of guilt, the weight of shame, the weight of responsibility, and in many ways, the, the weight of being God, the weight of being the one responsible for every consequence or possible consequence or responsibility, whatever it happens to be. Throughout my interview with Jen, she kept circling back to this idea that depression is rooted in pride and thinking that one's definition of good must come to fruition in this world and that the person or something else that the person has put their hope in is the only way to achieve that good. It's a messy web because of two reasons. First, that depression is definitely a physiological thing. This person cannot control how they're feeling in a specific moment, and they may need to seek mental health services. It's also a messy concept because the world is actually supposed to be good. 
God created this world to be good, but people and dark spiritual forces messed it up so that most things are broken. Most things. God still allows people to experience glimpses of what the world was like before and of what the world after this will be like. Chances of redemption are still possible. He also makes it very clear that he lets things be bad so that he can make them good again. That's Romans 8. The Bible talks about how creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God. It's God's will for things to be broken so that, or in hope that, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Also, we can't forget that beloved verse, Romans 8:28. God lets bad things happen for the good of those people he calls to himself. All that good works up to the ultimate good, that liberation, the day when God himself comes to earth again and deals with the darkness and changes the heavens and the earth like robes to bring light. No more pain, no more crying. But for right now, there's pain and there's crying. And every tear somehow fits into the plan of God's greater good. Even if all those tears do is fall in his laps, not a drop is wasted. That's the world God runs, and the world he wants Christians to live in. Jen knew a lot about Christianity when she started college. She found it fascinating. She studied its basic tenets, also known as the gospel. It's the fact that God came in the flesh to absorb every ill motive, every imperfect action against God himself, not against ourselves or our own moral code and kill it in his own body. And death is his judgment and not our own. Okay, we don't make that call. So that anyone who looks on him, on Jesus, may be cleaned in God's sight. And anyone who looks on him also has the chance to have their brokenness be a part of something good. One day, Jen woke up one morning and believed it. God gave her the faith to believe it. At least some of it, it's a lot to take in. I asked Jen if God saving her soul and placing her in this reality happened to change her perspective on life. I mean, the simple answer is it changed absolutely everything. You, you go from being judge, jury, and executioner of yourself and your own life, and suddenly there's another author to the story, right? Like you're, you are a character. And I think that's probably my favorite way of describing the sovereignty of God. You go from thinking that you're the author of everything and somehow responsible for things, even if they're seemingly out of your control, to recognizing that you're just a part and a portion of it. And so when it comes to guilt, when it comes to failure, it actually gives you the ability to own up to it without that being paralyzing you get to recognize that there is one who is perfect coming to a place of a recognition of God's glory and his sovereignty. It removes that weight from you. So Jen, this is a hard question, but I just wanted to ask you, what if God never heals you from depression? Even though depression itself is objectively bad, how does that play into God's ultimately good plan? How can he use that or how has he used it in your life for good purposes? This is going to sound like a side note to start, but I deeply appreciate people that are considered mentally ill. 
And it's because in hearing them speak or hearing them try to rationalize the world, they're far more honest than most people. They're far more honest in recognizing their own fragility, their own idolatries, their own hopelessness, their own pain. Like all of it is right there and bubbled to the surface and, and becomes just all that's in their sightline in some ways. And so I think that it is wonderful and glorious to have those days when I can very easily get out of bed and there's no part of me that's in pain and I'm, I don't know, reacting to the world in a very reasonable way, if we can call it that. But I think something that God really, really pushes to the surface with depression specifically is that Ecclesiastes truth. There is nothing under the sun that will satisfy. There are things that point beyond things that are seemingly seemingly insignificant within themselves and would be insignificant within themselves, but things that point, point beyond to something that's not here. If I were living to live, I am in a place where I want to die. If I'm living to die, I'm in a place where I'm totally ready to live. And so what I mean by that is if I am trying to find any form of visceral satisfaction within my own experiences, within my own body, within my own mind, within my own food or siblings or family or Christian community even, which is wonderful. It's really hard because all of that is fleeting. And so it's really hard to break the narrative of this will sustain me. This, this will bring light into the darkness. So Seth, Jen just kind of talked about this idea where she says, if I were living to live, I'm in a place where I want to die. But if I'm living to die, I'm in a place where I'm totally ready to live. What do you think about that? First off, I think it sounds like somebody in seminary and is very smart. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm starting to think that it's too smart for me. But (laughs) it's a really great reminder about what the purpose of the gospel and living as a Christian really is. And I think Jesus models this for us in this idea of dying to self. We can see this in the story of Jesus where he knows throughout the time he's in ministry that he eventually is going to have to die for the sins of the world. But he also knows that he's going to rise again. And I think as Christians, when we think about how we have to die to ourselves, we also have the promise that death doesn't have the victory. Jesus has already conquered death. And we know that when we have to die to ourselves and we have to say, Lord, you can have it all today. I am not living for myself Mm -hmm. in any capacity. We also know that the victory is there in Jesus and that we can actually gain so much more in him when we choose to do that. So that's what kind of comes to my mind at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that's really good. Like, I think that one key part of dying to yourself is like, okay, who are we dying to exactly, Mm -hmm. right? It's to our father. And Yeah, I mean, I think what's so cool about the idea of the Trinity and what we get in that, theology of the Trinity is that the Spirit, the Son, and the Father all work together cohesively, but they also submit to each other. I think submission is kind of this term that we see as a very negative connotation in today's culture because honestly it has been taken that way where submission has been turned into this idea of you know, submission because of authority that is harmful and hateful and that's wrong. But I think the Bible and especially the Trinity gives us this really cool picture of what submission and dying to oneself can look like, 
we see this again in the story of Jesus where he and the father have this dialogue where they are both they're both God right and yet Jesus chooses to submit to the father mm-hmm. in willful submission and the father also submits to him in letting him die right it's this really crazy and just mind-boggling interplay between God and Jesus that also gives us a model for so many ways of living here on earth you know marriage is a great example the husband and the wife both having to willfully submit to each other in kind of this really cosmically strange way but it's so beautiful and it it's a recipe for how to give up our desires and focus on something greater by just not focusing on ourselves and even in that capacity of like i want to have a good day today even that in itself has a selfish motivation i mean you could really look at everything that we do in life and say it has a selfish motivation because we are inherently sinful and and flawed creatures in need of a savior but it's so freeing and that's the paradox of the gospel is that in order to find freedom you have to submit to the father right it's so countercultural, but it's so life-giving yeah it's just like what do you want the most right now do you want a good day or do you want what god has for you yeah and maybe that day you know god doesn't have for you a day that is going to fill your every desire but ultimately if he is leading you you will find rest and you will find peace in some capacity because he cares for you and he's not going to let you fall. The thing about coming to God in all honesty with him about our shattered expectations of life is that he meets us exactly where we are at. He understands and he weeps too. And then a miraculous thing happens. He becomes the rest we long for. He becomes the peace. He becomes the steadiness. He becomes the love, the purpose, the company we long for. It's because God is full of goodness. The Bible says that God is rich with goodness. And a brief tasting is all we need to see. He is good. I had a chat with a girl who's very near and dear to my heart. It's Mania Lewis. Manaya is a freshman who struggles with depression from time to time, but you can see the way she fights in the bright patterns in her clothes and the bigness of her afro and the pressed flowers strewn throughout her room. From the couch in her gothic dorm lounge, here's a bit of Manaya's advice on how to battle depression. Usually, when I find that I'm thinking about how bad the quality of life that I'm living is or like feeling sorry for myself, I realize that I'm focusing too much on myself and I need to take a step back to think about like the good things that are actually happening in my life as well, you know, because I feel like it's really easy to lose sight of like the blessings that God gives in light of sometimes the the trials that we face in life as well. Like, yeah, like I remember actually when I first moved to Cornell, they lost both of my luggage bags. So I was literally living in my room for like two weeks, no luggage, the same big old Cornell hoodie and pair of jeans. It was a mess. But then, and I felt like the devil was seriously like putting the pressure on to like despair and be like god why am i in new york my family's across the country like what am i gonna do but like i had to take a second and i had to think because 
Well, I could also get money back from, like, losing my stuff if they didn't. But they did eventually find it. And I had a beautifully sized room in Balch Hall at Cornell University. And I'm just a kid from the middle of nowhere, Georgia, mm-hmm. with no references whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So the Lord made a way for me to go to a really good school, have a really nice single room because I value my privacy and, you know, like (laughs) have a really cool major. And, you know, actually I had some nice people to talk to because I was able to talk to them like over the summer as well. And just like when you start to take inventory of your blessings, it really does help like get over the negative things that are happening in your life, you know, at least that's what I found. And also sort of like, you know, another thing that I do is like, look at it as sort of like, you know, a test that life throws at you. And I like to be, I I like to be victorious. I like to challenge. I like to box. Like if something's coming after me, then I'm trying to go to the next level. Like, okay, you're trying to check me. Oh, yeah, I see you. Like, you know, like, oh, so the devil wants to throw a curveball. Uh, I'm about to dodge. Like, like move on to the next level. So like, you know, like, Yeah, I sort of look at it a bit like a boxing match in some way. And, like, it's a way to lean into God and be victorious, you know? Like, because even if you're feeling weak, like, you know, the Lord is strong. So it's always like a teaching moment. Take inventory of your blessings. Also, take care of your environment. Take care of your person as well. Like, if you're smelling dingy, looking dingy, your room is grungy, you're not going to be in a good headspace. Just take care of your, your room your fit, hygiene, right? you'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> talk to other people. Yeah. <laughs> talk to other people. Don't, don't face it on your own, mm-hmm. you know? Like, lean into your godly friendships. Even seek, like, a professional counselor, but ma- make sure that they know what they're talking about because sometimes counselors be a little whack, but, you know, like, yeah. I don't know if this yeah. is helpful, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I was saying. All right, so, Seth, what did you think? Well, I think Manaya is very wise, first off. <laughs> I think the idea of counting your blessings, I mean, while it sounds so like basic, it's kind of very true. This ability to be able to back up and kind of take in the whole picture is really valuable when trying to think about your situation and how, how you're feeling in a certain situation. Yeah, like I think that it's, even though as you said it seems so basic one of the things that depression really does to a person is it makes it seem as if the one problem Mm. that is in their life is like the only thing that's happening Mm -hmm. makes you feel like it makes you very introspective very inward focused and so actually counting your blessings helps you get out of your head and get out of like yourself and start thinking about other people start thinking about like what's going on in this world what is god doing right now Yeah, being able to take stock of who's in your life, where you are, how you're feeling, how you even look or feel, like personal hygiene, exercise also kind of lends itself to being a way to kind of put yourself in the context where you're like, you know, rather than focusing on certain situation, you just have to go and do something else. And some people even see it as a way to get out of their head. That can help too. Manaya reminds me time and time again that God created good things, so good things must matter. The good serves to point to God. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul challenges people who believe that experiencing pleasure is wrong. He counters them by saying that God created everything. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. 
In an article on sexual purity, John Piper backs up Paul's point, saying that God made the world full of unnecessary pleasures. We were made to enjoy life just thinking about God. But knowing God first is what gets us there. In Acts, Paul is talking to a room full of Greeks who have never heard of this God. And he says in Acts 17, verse 26, From one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. This verse shows that when we struggle with the deepest and darkest parts of life or of ourselves, or if we experience the greatest joys in our life, everything was made to point to God, that we may know him. And that is the beginning of the process of finding what the good life is meant to be. Claritox is a production of Cornell Claritas, a journal of Christian thought at Cornell University. Our podcast staff this semester includes Seth Bollinger, Sarah Castor, Jack Kubinek, and Jisoo Ha. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Cornell Claritas or at cornellclaritas.com to see the rest of our musings and writings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>